0: The children can be dismissed for Children's Church at this time. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in singing. And thank you all for singing. You sounded great. Uh, It's not about us, and it's not about us sounding great, but it is really nice to hear people who love the Lord singing, singing out. You don't get that everywhere, but we do get that at this church. I'm really grateful for that. Lord God, I pray that you speak to us through your word now. And that you would just be with us, Simon, that you would be glorified, exalted, lifted up as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we were uh, first new to the country of Slovenia, we lived there for 20 years. And uh, Slovenia had just come out of communism, broke off from the the old country of Yugoslavia. And there was a regional park, it was a brand new park. And we went there, my parents were visiting and drove into this beautiful, just beautiful valley. And in the valley, there was this little coffee shop there. And there was a man who managed the coffee shop. And he was explaining to me a little bit about the history of the valley. He said, before, uh, a long time ago, this this valley belonged to the king. And no one could come to this valley. Uh, King Kara Georgievich from the Serbian dynasty. And then... Uh, then he said, after that was communism, and it belonged to King Tito. He was the president, but he said everyone knew he was king. And no one could come here. And he said, now it belongs to King Marion and everyone is welcome. I said, are you King Marion? And he said, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps you've met a king like that, someone who's uh, passing himself off as a king maybe after they've had a few adult beverages and they're going on about how they're a king well i've met several of those kinds. you probably have too have you ever met an actual king with a claim to a throne with a family dynasty Uh, have you ever seen one i've never met one i've never seen one but i did hear one once uh I was living in Serbia at the time, it was 1991, there had been violent demonstrations, people were killed in the demonstrations, the opposition, which was fractured, many parties were trying to overthrow the communist government at the time. And it was in this context that the rumors spread on the streets that the king is wanting to come to Serbia said to my friend of mine, I said, I didn't even know Serbia had a king. He goes, oh, yes, we have a king. And he said that uh, um, they had to flee when the Germans invaded at the start of the Second World War and they fled to England where they were given sanctuary. They were the government, the recognized government in exile. But after the war, the communists took over and the king was never able to come back and claim his throne. And so he was explaining to me that the king wants to come He's not really going to claim his throne. He's going to be a figurehead so that the opposition can rally around him in hopes of overthrowing the government. But the government refused to grant him a visa and so uh, because obviously they did not want the king to come. And then word spread on the street, and it was like wildfire. This is before the age of texting and and, uh, all the conveniences we have nowadays. But the word spread quickly that the king actually did come to Serbia. He was in an airplane at the airport. It had landed. He was there. And the governing authorities were not allowing him off of the airplane. What was going to happen? It was, for me, fascinating. I mean, I'm from America where we don't have royalty. The only royal thing we have is a hamburger from a fast food place. Well, eventually the the governing authorities relented and he was able to come to the city center. There's this huge Orthodox church. He was inside, he gave a speech. That's when I heard him. Over these loud speakers on the outside. Thousands of people were inside the church, many more thousand outside. And as we're listening to this guy, and I couldn't understand the word he's saying, he's speaking in Serbian. My friend was telling me that his Serbian wasn't really that, that good. He'd lived his whole life in England. His father had been the actual king. Uh, and then his son, his eight-year-old son, got up to speak, and I guess he spoke flawless Serbian with a Serbian accent even, and the crowd loved him, and uh, people were laughing and smiling when the little boy was speaking. And again, I don't know what he was saying, but I do realize this, that while that was going on, and the king is wanting to be there in the hopes of overthrowing the government, that uh, the, in the crowd, there was a ro- the crowd spilled out into some streets, and there was traffic still moving through the streets. The police were there, um, but they weren't stopping the traffic. They didn't want to give uh, any um, sanctuary or safety for the crowd. They didn't want the crowd to be there. They did not want the king to be there. Had the king succeeded in what he wanted to do, they would be out of power. They had their own motives for why they didn't want him there. Well, the book of Matthew is a great book. It's about the coming of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of the book can be summarized with the phrase, Behold your king. That's what Matthew is writing about in his book. I wanted to to preach from a small section on the Sermon on the Mount And that's how I started out when I was preparing. And I I started to give some background information to the book of Matthew. One thing led to another, and so today's sermon is about the background information of Matthew. I began to discover many things that I thought, I want to keep going in that direction. And so uh, I'm going to do a survey of the book of Matthew with a few thoughts and applications thrown in. Matthew's a long book, 28 chapters You will get out on time, though. I will give a brief survey, hopefully, of the book of Matthew and to pull out a few things. Matthew 1, 1, he begins, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Three things right off the bat. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one, the anointed one the one that the prophets foretold about for centuries, that's Jesus. Second, he's son of David. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. Uh, Legally, Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. God promised David that he would have a descendant on his throne and he will rule forever. Uh, Matthew says that Jesus was born, he gives a genealogy of Joseph, and, and it is through the family of David. J- Joseph is a descendant of David, and Mary and Luke, the genealogy is given there, she is also a descendant of David. Jesus, Jesus had two claims to the throne of David, legal claims, Uh Matthew's very clear to point out that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until after she was born, and that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And yet through the line of Dave, or Joseph, he had a claim to the throne, as well as through the line of Mary. So Jesus was the legal heir to the throne. The problem is that the Romans were in control of Palestine. Uh, it wasn't called Palestine at the time. it was Judea and Samaria. Uh, but they were in control. And they had their puppet government set up there. And it was, if you remember from the Christmas story, it was Herod who was the king there. The only trouble is Herod was like King Marian. He wasn't a real king. He was an imposter. He was an Edomite from Edumea. He wasn't even a Jew, so he was certainly not ruling on the throne of David. The French historian Renan said, of the book of Matthew said, this is the most important book in all of Christendom. Whether it is or not, I'm not sure, but it is certainly an influential book. He went on to say, the most important book that has ever been written is the book of Matthew. Matthew is an extremely foundational and important book. Most people, when they begin reading the Bible, they start in the New Testament. And what do you do when you begin reading a book? You start at the beginning. And so perhaps, I'm not saying it is, but perhaps Matthew is the most widely read book in the history of the world. If it's not, it's certainly one of the most widely read books ever in the history of the world. At any rate, Matthew is profoundly influential. The word kingdom... <clears throat> is mentioned over 50 times in the book of Matthew. It is the gospel of the king. Matthew is the gospel of king. Mark is the gospel of the servant. Jesus came to serve. Matthew, he's trying to show that Jesus is the king. Luke it is the gospel of the son of man. Jesus is fully man, fully human. John is the gospel of the son of God, showing the deity of Jesus Christ. King, servant, man, God. Matthew was written for the Jew to the nation Israel. It was, according to most church fathers, originally written in Hebrew. I didn't know that until I started studying this, that Matthew was probably written in Hebrew. Some date Matthew after, written after 70 A.D. because they don't believe in miracles and they don't believe in predictive Uh, Prophecy, because in Matthew twenty-four and twenty-five, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in seventy A.D. But if it was written in Hebrew, it was most likely written in the early fifties or early sixties. It doesn't matter so much. But it was one of the early, earlier books written, one of the earliest gospels. Most people think Mark was the earliest gospel, but perhaps Matthew was written in Hebrew, written to the Jew. Mark is a book of action written for a Roman audience. It's for the man or woman who wants power, who wants law and order. Luke, on the other hand, was written for a Greek audience, the thinking or the educated person. It's for the Near Eastern mentality, the mystical, the philosophical mind. And John was written for the world, for the wretch, for the lost sinner, for you and me. The person who is in in need of a Savior, John is very evangelistic. He says, I write so that you can believe in the Son of God and that believing you have eternal life. He's written for the person who's lost. Matthew writing to the Jew, saying, this was your king. Uh, The message again of Matthew is, behold your king. There are over 50 Old Testament quotes in the book of Matthew, linking it solidly with the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. There is more teaching by Jesus in the book of Matthew than any other gospel. To paraphrase roughly from the Ryrie study notes in their intro to the book of Matthew, he says, Matthew was written to the Jews to answer their questions about Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be their Messiah. Was he, in fact, the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament? If he was, why did he fail to establish the promised kingdom? Will the kingdom ever be established? What is God's purpose in the meantime? Thus, in this gospel, Jesus is often spoken of as the son of David and as the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And the kingdom of heaven is the subject of much of his recorded teaching. Again, that was from the Ryrie Study Bible Notes intro to the book of Matthew. The teaching of the kingdom of heaven is peculiar to the book of Matthew. No other gospel writer mentions the kingdom of heaven, only Matthew. The other gospel writers mention the kingdom of God, but not the kingdom of heaven. So, is there a difference? The kingdom of heaven concerns itself with Jesus' earthly rule on earth, from Jerusalem. It is God's rule over the earth. The kingdom of God is far more general. It's God's rule of everything, including the kingdom of heaven. God's rule of everything. There is often a lot of muddled thinking with regard to the kingdom of heaven and the church. I do not for an instant believe that they are the same thing based upon my study of the Bible. Uh, Matthew is the only gospel that mentions the church. And both times in Matthew is future tense. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet in chapter 3, Jesus said, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now. It's not future tense. He's offering it at that time. The church is in the kingdom. Everyone who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior has been translated into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We have been lovingly brought into the kingdom by Jesus Christ and has shed blood on the cross for our sins. Everyone who has faith in Him. Ephesians says, Paul says in Ephesians, we were transferred into the kingdom Of the beloved Son. He also says that the dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile has been abolished. We've been brought in, we have access. And then he says in Romans that that, that we have been grafted into the promises of God. So, Gentile believers in Jesus Christ are not second class citizens. We have been fully brought in to the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The church is in the kingdom, but the kingdom is not the church. Let me illustrate. If I say that Viroqua is in Wisconsin, that makes sense. If I say Wisconsin is in Viroqua, the people in Madison might have something to say about that. Or the people in Westby, right? Anyone from Westby? (laughs) You might have something to say about that as well. We're part of the kingdom. We've been brought in, but we are not the entirety of it. The kingdom is the reign of heaven on earth. Let me ask you this. Do you currently see the reign of heaven on earth? Do you see the governments of the world following God's righteous laws and commands? Do you see people living according to the Sermon on the Mount? No. No. The kingdom isn't right now, except in the hearts and lives of people. Matthew is talking about an actual kingdom, a real kingdom, a physical kingdom that will reign and rule over the nations of this world. Uh, Jesus is going to one day establish that kingdom was a story about the king who saw this beautiful horse and he wanted the horse and the guy wouldn't sell it. Finally, the king said, My kingdom for the horse. Got news for you. Uh, if he gave his kingdom for the horse, he's no longer a king. He's simply a man on horseback. A king needs a kingdom, and a kingdom must have a king. Uh, Esau, the rightful heir... Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He got his belly filled temporarily, but he was no longer the heir. He was no longer the heir. He gave it away. Jesus lovingly purchased the church with his own blood. You and I have been brought in to his family through his blood. We've been forgiven and cleansed because of the sacrifice of Christ, but he did not for a moment forsake the kingdom. He brought us in to the kingdom. We have been adopted, we've been grafted in, we are children, we are joint heirs with Jesus in his kingdom, in his family. In Matthew, there are three major teachings of Jesus, three main discourses, all concern the kingdom. The first is the Sermon on the Mount, and it um, it concerns itself with the law of the kingdom. What are the laws of the kingdom? And it, it, Jesus is, I believe, expanding on what is the, the Old Testament law, and this will be the law of the kingdom. Uh, Matthew 5 says that the crowds came to Jesus, and they gathered to him. He went up on the mountain, and <clears throat> he sat down to teach. Uh, wouldn't you have loved to have been there, to be a part of that. Uh, it must—it Really, it must have been something else. And the first thing he says, recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, does anyone remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've read the Sermon on the Mount many times, and I, I must confess, as I read it, I'm like, I can't do that. It puts me under the pile. I read it, and I'm like, uh, I try, but I'm guilty. Blessed are the poor in spirit who come to Jesus with empty hands. We're not bringing something with us saying, Jesus, you and me, we're going to figure this thing out. We're coming to Jesus. We're poor in spirit. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is the law of the kingdom. The law... It's good, it's right, but it's intended to lead us to the Savior. That's the purpose. That's If you've ever felt under the pile by reading the Sermon on the Mount, I can relate. Uh, the good news is it points us to Jesus. Who, In fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Hmm. And as you read through Matthew, written to Jews, Jesus very meticulously obeys every element of the law. Uh, Jesus obeys the law. He fulfilled the law on our behalf, the law that you and I could never, never fulfill. One day, that will be the law of the land, and we will joyfully, joyfully obey. There won't be the lust. There won't be the power plays. There won't be murder or challenge or the greed. Uh, We'll be giving to one another, serving one another, loving one another. Uh, Also included in the book of Matthew and in the teachings of Jesus are the mystery parables. It is a description of the kingdom. Jesus says oftentimes the kingdom of heaven is like. For example, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who discovered treasure in a field and he sold everything everything he has, and went out and bought that field because this treasure was so valuable. And then there's the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew because the majority of it takes place on the Mount of Olives. It begins in the city center of Jerusalem as they're walking through the... uh, Jesus is right before the crucifixion, walking through the city center and one of the disciples says hey jesus look at the temple isn't that magnificent and jesus says i'll tell you not one stone is going to be left on top of another now if you're with jesus wouldn't you kind of want to know a little bit more information about that and so they ask him lord when's that going to be and when's the time of your coming and so he goes and to the mount of olives and teaches them uh, about um, his the establishment of the kingdom. When these things will happen, um, what the signs to look out for, and what will be the signs of His coming kingdom. So if you miss the movement of these ideas in the book of Matthew, it's like missing a turnoff on a highway. Uh, You can see some wonderful sights, you can glean some wonderful things, you can learn some things. But the destination is still really important. And the destination in the book of Matthew is about the king who came, who's coming back again. He came originally as a servant. He's coming back in his fullness of glory the next time to rule on the earth. Right now the kingdom of heaven exists only in the hearts of God's people. It's like the mustard seed that's planted and it's really small but don't worry one day it will fill the entire earth that's the kingdom of heaven that's precisely what matthew is arguing in his book that jesus is the king he will one day rule over all the nations of the world in jerusalem um what do we know though about the writer of this book what do you know about matthew One of the disciples, what did you say? He was a tax collector. Matthew 9, 9 says, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. When I was a young boy and I went to Sunday school and I learned that people didn't like Matthew because he was a tax collector And the tax collector, who does, I mean, uh, anyway, the uh, tax collector would collect the taxes and whatever was over and above what the state required was his. And so they would overcharge people and they would get more money. Perhaps that's true. I'm not certain on that. But as a result, he was a wealthy man by taxing people. And therefore, he was resented. But the news about Matthew is far worse than being a wealthy man who ever taxed people. Matthew was a collaborator with the Romans. He was one who was helping to prop up this oppressive regime that the people wanted removed. Far more than simply being greedy or wealthy or overcharging people, he was a dirty, traitorous collaborator. As I mentioned, we lived in Slovenia and Uh, It was part of Yugoslavia. They were invaded by the Italians and then the Germans in the Second World War. And during the occupation of the Italians and the uh, the occupation of the Germans, some people collaborated with the occupying forces. And after the Second World War, the communists came into power and they dealt with the collaborators. Um, Collaborators do not want the kingdom to come. They do not want the change in government. They've cast their lot with one side, and they don't want the other side to come back into power. That was Matthew. In, U- in Slovenia, the collaborators were rounded up. Even people who might not have even collaborated were rounded up. They were tortured. They were made sport of. I mean, they had fun torturing these people. And then they were executed And as a result, there are mass graves in the country of Slovenia, and the wounds are are just below the surface there. Something very real, very real. I have no doubt that Matthew was fully aware that that was his fate should the Roman government fall. Uh, He was far more than just a, a wealthy cheat. He was one who was helping to prop up the whole system of oppression. And yet Jesus came to him and he simply said, follow me. And the Bible says that Matthew got up and left his booth and followed Jesus. Jesus called him and Matthew followed. The question is, why? Why did this guy who was a greedy collaborator turned his back on that and choose to follow Jesus. This is the realm of speculation, but I believe Matthew was there at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, He recorded it, and one of the things he recorded is in chapter 6 beginning at verse 19 when it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew's heart was solidly with his wealth. And yet something changed. And I don't believe that Matthew all of a sudden became this nice guy. I believe that Matthew was a bottom line kind of guy. Again, this is the area of speculation, but I believe that Matthew realized that wealth I've got here is small compared to what Jesus is offering me. This is finite. This is eternal. And he did the math, and he realized, I haven't been thinking big enough. And as a result, he gave his heart to Christ. It continues in Matthew chapter six verse 31. "Do not worry then, uh, saying, "What will we eat or what will we drink?" or what will we wear for clothing?" For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, for your heavenly Father knows what you need that you need all these things, but seek first His kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew was seeking his own self-interest. He shifted his focus to begin to seek the things of heaven, the things above. Why did he do that? I think because he found out it was a better bargain. Uh, We concern ourselves with petty little things. They grab our attention, but the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is something far more valuable. C.S. Lewis writes, all people seek their own happiness. This is without exception. The man who goes to war and the man who avoids war do so for exactly the same reason their own happiness. Mm. Matthew was seeking his own happiness through riches. You know, that's the thing about sin. It never really quite fulfills, does it? And you're never really happy. And he found greater riches and greater happiness, I believe, following Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah. Matthew made the switch. And then Matthew chapter 9, it's recorded that uh, verse 10, that it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When Jesus, or when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, Why do your why does your teacher, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus was eating with these other collaborators, these other sinners, these other cheaters. I have no doubt that these people were brought to Jesus, probably in in Matthew's own home, brought to Jesus by Matthew. Saying, look, this is something better. Matthew brought these other collaborators, these cheats, these traitors, and Jesus, for his part, is eating with them. And the Pharisees said, why is Jesus doing that? They were asking the wrong question, I believe. You ask the wrong question, of course you get the wrong answer. The assumption that the Pharisees had, the religious leaders had, is why was Jesus throwing his lot in with the enemy? Why was he with the oppressors of Israel, the sinners? They're from the wrong party. They're not... Aligned with us. He was hanging with the Democrats when he should be hanging with the Republicans, or he was hanging with the Republicans when he should be hanging with the Democrats. They misread the situation. They thought Jesus should be aligned to their specific party, but Matthew's making the point Jesus didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. That is the message of Matthew. It's not that Jesus aligns himself to us and what our wishes and desires and our political aspirations or social, social ideas are. It's that we align ourselves to Jesus and what he would like in this world. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that's why Jesus said at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Change your mind. You were thinking this way. Turn. Think this way. You were thinking that the Messiah is going to do this for you, and you were thinking that the Messiah is going to do this for you, and He's going to align to your cause. But you need to repent, and you need to align yourself with His cause, His kingdom. His kingdom come. Jesus didn't come on earth to be a part of a political faction. He's not concerned about donkeys and elephants. He's the king who has come to take over, and he will one day inaugurate his kingdom here on earth. And then everyone on this planet, Republican, Democrat, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, LGBTQ, generation XYZ, one, two, three, everyone will one day bow the knee before this king. Do you realize that if Jesus is just the head of your special interest group, how degrading that is to him? How it takes so much away from his majesty. It cuts at the very heart of the majesty of Jesus. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, they said, Jesus, you pray differently. Can you teach us to pray? And Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, notice the connection, the relational connection. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Be worshipped, first and foremost, above everything. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that's a prayer of alignment. Not Jesus to our agenda, but us to God's. That is a prayer of That will certainly be answered. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven. uh, I don't recommend a lot of books from the pulpit. This is a great book. I highly recommend Heaven. He writes, The incarnation is about God inhabiting space and time as a human being. The new heavens and new earth are about God making space and time his eternal home. God will dwell with man. Wow. Won't that be something? It will be the garden revisited. Uh, Randy Alcorn, again, in, in his book Heaven, says, God's plan is that there will no longer be a gulf between the spiritual and the physical. He will bring heaven and earth together. Another thought about Matthew and him being a hated collaborator, you realize included in the list of Jesus' disciples was a man by the name of Simon. There's Simon that Jesus gave the nickname Peter, Simon Peter. And we know that he was a very impulsive man, that he was a, really a kind of a great leader, the others would follow his lead, and that he was radical. I mean, he chopped off the ear of the servant in the garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. But there was another Simon, it's called his name, he had a nickname too, and his nickname was Zealot. He was always referred to as Simon the Zealot. Whenever you see him... It's always Simon the Zealot. He was one of the 12. I get the idea that the disciples, if you were to ask them, they would say, yes, Simon Peter, he's radical. But have you met Simon the Zealot? Now, he's radical. A zealot is where we get the word zeal or zealous. A zealot is a person who is fanatical and uncompromising in pursuit of their religions Political or uh, religious or political or other ideas. Uh, also, a zealot was a member of an ancient Jewish sect aiming at uh, a world Jewish theocracy and resisting the Romans. And then this from Britannica.com. <clears throat> the zealots were an aggressive political party whose concern for the national and religious life of the Jewish people led them to despise even Jews who sought peace and conciliation with the Roman authorities can you imagine Matthew and Simon the zealot in the same band how was Jesus able to do it how was he able to reconcile these people into uh, a close knit group of people I think the answer is obvious Jesus took their focus off of their cause, whether it's the cause of self or the cause of wealth or the cause of the politics of the day, and he put it on himself and on his kingdom, squarely upon Jesus himself and his kingdom. That, I think, is a good word for us today. In this age and in the history of our country where there's so much division uh, racially, socially, morally, and politically, where people, uh, instead of having conversations, scream at each other, or worse even. Jesus has been so good to give us something to replace our immediate cause. He writes about it in the end of his book in Matthew. It's called The Great Commission, where Jesus told his disciples to wait for him. This is after his resurrection. To wait for him at this specified mountain. And they came to him, and then Jesus said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, always even to the end of the age. Jesus has graciously given us something to occupy us until he returns again. And that is to make disciples fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. To explain to people how they can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that is the mission of the church. It's not an appendage or an addendum to the church. That is the very heart and soul and mission of the church is to make disciples How to be involved in that on a corporate level and a personal level is something that we really need to contemplate. A church, as well as the individual Christian, must have this great commission as their focus, I believe, if we are ever to remain spiritually healthy in this world in which we are living. There are many good causes, I, uh, I believe in the right to life, and I believe that as believers, um, we need to be involved in that. And I believe it's very, at the very heart of God. God cares for the weak uh, and the, the helpless, and certainly we should as well. But we also need to be given ourselves to the message of the gospel that Jesus saves uh, and that people are lost apart from Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, again, same context as at the end of Matthew, Acts chapter 1, where the disciples came to Jesus at the appointed mountain, picking up in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, it says, "...so when they had come together, they were asking him, Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?" Now, I've heard a lot of sermons where the disciples are criticized for this. But if you read the book of Matthew, it's exactly the right question. It is the right question. It's the wrong time. That's why Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Right question, it's just I'm not going to answer it right now. It's not the right time for that question. In other words, the kingdom is certainly coming. That's the right question. Jesus will one day return to earth. He will establish his kingdom, and he will rule from Jerusalem. A few questions for you today. Have you somehow diminished the majesty of Jesus' by viewing him simply through the prism of your favorite special interest group? Have you diminished his majesty by relegating Jesus to part of your special interest group? Second, do you think about the coming kingdom of heaven and view it with anticipation, looking forward to the Lord's return? Or are you chiefly focused on the siren calls of this world? Too busy to think about what's coming And because it's coming, how therefore should I live in light of what will one day be? Third, uh, does the way you wear your Christian faith tend to divide you from other true believers in Christ or bring you closer in spite of the differences you may have? Um, Whatever you have as your convictions, hold them and hold them deeply but in the way that you wear them and in the way that you treat others, it should always be with love and care and respect. That's the way of the kingdom. Fourth, are you actively engaged in the great commission, the advancement of the gospel of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this book of Matthew. Thank you so much for bringing us into your kingdom. When we were Uh, separate from the promises of Israel, we've been brought in so graciously. Thank you that one day you will establish your righteous rule here in this world. May we now be faithful subjects of that kingdom even now and be um, those who are salt and light for you in this crooked and perverse generation that we find ourselves in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May you have a last week.